Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. I'm delighted today to be joined by Senator Thomas Daschle. Welcome, Tom, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be with you. Thanks for doing the podcast. Senator Daschle served four terms in the House of Representatives starting in 1978 and then moved to the Senate in 86 and served up until January of 2005, served as minority leader starting in 1995 and as majority leader in 2001. While in the Senate leadership and beyond after that, founded the Bipartisan Policy Center and has been highly active on health matters in a variety of forms. And we're here today to talk about an initiative that he's involved in leading, which is the Coalition to Stop Flu. They've issued a recent very compelling report. They're standing behind some very ambitious and very important legislation that's been introduced into both the House and the Senate. So let's start, Senator, with the Coalition to Stop Flu. Tell us a bit about its genesis. What is it? Who are its members? What's its mission? Well, Steve, the coalition grew out of a series of conversations that we had with influenza stakeholders all the way back to the fall of of actually 2019. We were energized, actually, by an executive order by the Trump administration. They released it on modernizing influenza vaccines, and the executive order uh, evolved ultimately into a, a national strategy under the Biden administration. But we knew, actually, that it was going to take a a lot of stakeholder support to turn it into a reality. So we knew the real power of the group could be in speaking with a united voice, which isn't always the case when it comes to many of these issues, on behalf of what we call the flu ecosystem. The coalition is comprised of just a number of diverse organizations representing public health and patient advocacy, academic, scientific and research, healthcare professionals, emerging biotech companies healthcare distributors, vaccine, antiviral, diagnostic manufacturers. It's really, it's an extraordinary group. 22 different uh, entities all focused on the same goal. And that goal is just ending deaths from seasonal and pandemic influenza in our lifetime. We know that's a very ambitious goal, but I really think, and we all think that it's achievable or we wouldn't be doing this. We really, probably now more than ever, it's so critical And so towards this end, we're focused on advocating for public policy agenda that that actually saves lives, saves money, and protects public health by strengthening the U.S. influenza ecosystem. I assume that when COVID struck, and and we're now in the post-COVID phase, the acute phase behind us, that that profound experience reshaped and I assume gave an additional boost to the efforts of this coalition. Is that accurate? No question. Obviously, there was a great deal of focus on the crisis. Uh, we've lost uh, so many, many lives. And I think, I think that it's really the dual focus, both on pandemic flu and seasonal flu, 
that cause us to be even more energized as a result of our experiences these, these past couple of years. Now, you put out recently a report, the 2022-2023 influenza season, outcomes and policy recommendations that came out this fall. So what was most noteworthy and jarring, in your view, about what happened during the 2022-2023 season to warrant such a report? What are you trying to focus America's attention? Well, it's kind of interesting. First and foremost, I'd say the flu came back after two seasons of of what we would describe as sort of minimal activity. We, we felt it was important to take a look back at the first season where we experienced what we commonly refer to as a triple-demic. Uh, that is, the public health experts were worried about or flu, number one, COVID, number two, and RSV, respiratory of uh, syncytial virus, uh, were all circulating at the same time. You might remember how difficult last winter was. One survey that we cite in the report found that the holidays and into January of 2023, this is an incredible number, 40% of all American households were hit with either influenza, COVID-19, or RSV. That, that is just really a striking uh, statistic. And this led to some very different and difficult situations for providers, particularly in pediatric settings. They were inundated. And it's kind of a scary situation for anyone who needs a hospital bed for their child whether for flu or something like appendicitis. Uh, the CDC classified last season as moderately severe, and, and they recently determined that it was of high severity for children. And one of the, the real sad things, Steve, that I, 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 just, uh, I just can't help but get out of my mind, that we lost 182 kids last season. That's 10 more since our report was actually published. And the CDC data shows that 55% of those children had no pre-existing condition and that would predispose them to a severe outcome. And of those eligible to be vaccinated, here's the striking fact, 83% were unvaccinated. We, we described that as a preventable tragedy. In fact, I'd be remiss if I didn't urge anyone listening that has not received a flu shot to go get one. As long as flu is circulating in your community, it's, it's still not too late to get vaccinated. The report is actually pretty blunt about some of the most vexing challenges, including the decline in trust in vaccines tied to low vaccine rates, difficulties and sensitivities surrounding data, access barriers, steady decline in investment in public health, and obviously the continued threat of H591. So do you feel like the report has registered with the broad public? We have a public that's very divided. We've got a lot of vaccine hesitancy. We've got a lot of politicization of some of the main instruments of vaccines, of testing and diagnostics, antivirals. We've, we've come out of this period more divided than we were pre, pre-COVID. This report, it seems to me, is very constructive in the tone that it strikes. It's a very reasonable, common sense, but blunt report. Are you breaking through some of the noise that's out there that gets in the way of having informed and civil conversations about these topics? Well, that's a great question. I hope so. The real target of the report really is policymakers in Congress and the administration. The report makes concrete policy recommendations to help improve our federal programs to, to prepare for and respond to seasonal and pandemic flu. As to whether we've been successful, I think time will, will, will tell. The report has been well-received. We've been asked to provide briefings for key staffers on both sides of the aisle in both the House and the, and the Senate. We held a congressional briefing on the Hill in September that C-SPAN uh, covered, and that was encouraging. 
But you well know this is a difficult political moment, as you noted in your question. And moving forward on any substantial policy change, let alone healthcare, is extremely challenging. So we're we're hopeful that there will be opportunities in the new year, despite these challenges uh, that come up in a presidential year, and we're going to keep working for that goal. Well, they, yes, the the evidence seems to be mixed in terms of the environment we're in, right? We're in a an electoral campaign environment where many of these politicized issues have been given greater salience, but we're also seeing the temperature coming down in other in other conversations, at other places. I mean, we've been out talking to folks in North Carolina, Indiana, Nebraska, Washington State, folks at the leadership position in those states. This is a project we're doing with COVID Collaborative. Gary Edson and his team there and with Beth Cameron at the Brown University Center on Health Security. And we're seeing that there's a lot of reflection, very sober reflection around what to do and how to bring things back coming from both Republican and Democratic leaders. It it, it crosses political lines. Are you seeing anything like that? We are. We are. And I really want to congratulate and thank CSIS for all of their good work in this space. It's so critical and leadership and engagement is so required and somebody has to be the convener. And I think CSIS has done a phenomenal job of uh, playing that convener role. So we, we feel encouraged by it. We think that there's so much that has to be done, that can be done. And as you noted, it's, it's long overdue. I just hope that we can continue to find the momentum and the push and the prioritization it's going to require to get the job done. Let's turn to the bill, the Influenza Act, Senate 3219. It was introduced by Senator Baldwin from Wisconsin. Tell us a bit about that bill. It's very timely. It's very ambitious. It's had many different component elements to it. It's quite comprehensive. Why did you put this forward? Well, I, first and foremost, we just believe it's long, long overdue. This is, to our knowledge, the, the first comprehensive bill that captures the changes needed to modernize and strengthen the, the federal influenza ecosystem. The bill right now is a Democrat-only bill in both the House and the Senate. It's led by Congressman Rick Larson of of Washington State, and as you say, to Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin. And we're so grateful to them for their leadership and and their commitment. Every senator has a limited amount of bandwidth, and uh, they both have dedicated some of their bandwidth to this critical issue. We've collectively worked very hard over the last 18 months to socialize the bill with members of Congress uh, in the House and the Senate on both sides of the aisle. And actually, we've been very pleased at the reception we've received privately from both Republicans and Democrats. But two things have made it difficult to attract bipartisan co-sponsors. First, the fact that the bill addresses both vaccines and the CDC. This is a very difficult political moment for public health. But coalition members are going to continue to be working with bill sponsors next year to, to work for opportunities to move pieces of the bill in a bipartisan way, hopefully in a package of non-controversial legislation. You know, what you just mentioned, it brings to mind also that Mandy Cohen, the new director since August 1st of CDC, she, of course, made as one of her top priorities in the first several months of her tenure as director of CDC, she made one of her top priorities the respiratory viral season, i.e. RSV, COVID, flu, and has also made a priority engagement, stepping up and intensifying engagement with the Hill. In the first 90 days, I think she visited with 30 different offices. 
with a very good mix of Republican and Democrat. And so that what you're proposing, what you're putting forward tracks very closely with a kind of new reset going on within CDC and also the creation of a new new ranks of leadership across this administration. I mean, Monica Bertugnoli is now the head of NIH, succeeding Francis Collins. Francis stepped down end of 2021. There was a bit of a gap. We have new leadership, General Friedrichs in the White House, the Office of Pandemic Preparedness and Response. Uh, John Nkengazong has been elevated to become an assistant secretary rank of a new bureau at the Department of State. And there are other places, OSTP at the White House, uh, the ARPA-H, new leadership ranks coming forward. It seems to me that this bill comes forward at a time when you have new energy and new leadership in place who don't carry the same burden of what happened during the battles around COVID and with the same level. They're able to introduce and begin to have a different kind of conversation, it seems. You're absolutely right. They come with uh, not only a, a, a new energy and maybe a new perspective, but I think they don't uh, have all of the, the battle scars of all of the battles we've had to face over the last several years. So they come as fresh faces with uh, with renewed energy. And I give them great credit for their outreach, uh, for the uh, the tremendous prioritization they've uh, they placed in, in this critical area. And, and I'm encouraged. The one thing I really hope we can achieve here is that bipartisan consensus that gives us the opportunity to really move uh, this uh, set of priorities in, a, in an agenda that uh, would accommodate compromise and, and accommodate the real belief and understanding uh, that these issues are, are best dealt with preemptively, not reactively. One of the things that jumps out from the, the legislation and the report is the the need, the imperative, really, to upgrade our communications capacities and to take head on the pervasive disinformation and misinformation out there and the hesitancy that has appeared towards vaccines in American society. It's not limited to American society, but we do have a problem and it's manifest across multiple vaccines in the United States. And there's a real fear of further regression in terms of childhood diseases in particular, Say a bit about what you think needs to really happen, because this is a knotty issue. It's not always clear what will work here in trying to upgrade our communications cap capabilities and understand what's going to work at rolling back this misinformation, disinformation. Well, I have to say, I think in almost every context uh, that I work in, and that's a fairly broad broad perspective, a broad spectrum of different things. I, I happen to chair the uh, National Democratic Institute, and we're dealing with mis- and disinformation in democracies around the world uh, with 70 elections coming up in 2024. And so I don't think it's hyperbole to say that it is really one of the greatest threats to our national security, especially when it relates to health care. Polling shows that flu vaccine remains more trusted than almost any other vaccine, so we're encouraged by that. But we can see the broader vaccine hesitancy, which of course predates the COVID-19 pandemic creeping into flu vaccine rates as well. So I'm, I'm very disheartened to report that so far this season, flu vaccination rates are declining for the third year in a row. I think that's just tragic. And I attribute that in large measure to miss and disinformation orchestrated along with the algorithm capacity that we continue to witness as we use social media. 
This problem is particularly acute among children and pregnant people, two of the groups most likely to experience severe outcomes from flu. Last season, uh, flu vaccine coverage among pregnant people was 10 to 15 percent points lower than it was pre-COVID. And flu vaccination coverage among children was 6 percent lower. And this year's numbers, unfortunately, Steve, are even worse. There's no silver bullet to this problem, unfortunately, but one of the solutions that has shown success is focusing on trusted messengers, those people or those organizations within communities that can help deliver the message to get vaccinated, get tested, get treated. The bill uh, that we're, we've introduced would require HHS to create partnerships across the influenza ecosystem to address myths and disinformation, focusing on organizations with experience working with vulnerable populations especially. And that would include sharing best practices across these groups. The bill also would authorize HHS to, to fund a new communications public-private partnership initiative for increasing vaccine confidence that was really kind of modeled after the Truth Initiative for Tobacco. We need to take this, this issue on as just as aggressively as we possibly can, because it's only going to get worse unless we collectively address it and give it the priority it deserves. And I hope we can continue to demonstrate that. I think this idea of reaching out to private sector interests, particularly around media, is essential to creating new capabilities here. I think also leadership style is going to be terribly important and in rebuilding trust and confidence among a public that's large portion of which is turned away or is skeptical. And what by that I mean, we see a, a greater call now from people like General Friedrichs and Mandy Cohen and the new, new ranks of leadership for a certain humility, for much more systematic outreach to folks at the state and local and municipal levels, to listening carefully and showing that kind of basic humility and engagement. And it, I'm, I'm happy to see that that is in fact happening. We're seeing a lot more of that. It's going to take collaboration and it's going to take a lot of leadership. And it's going to take, I think, uh, the resources necessary once that leadership and collaboration can be established, we can't minimize how serious a threat this really is. And the sooner we can recognize it, deal with it, and provide some real solutions to address it, the better. Now, you put a lot of emphasis in the report and in the legislation on equity of access. And it's a very big theme. There's a lot of emphasis, particularly on the elderly and other, other vulnerable populations. Say a bit more about this. I mean, this... On the other side of COVID, in the post-COVID era, this equity theme, equity of access and putting a special focus on the most vulnerable has really become so dramatic. Say a bit about that. You are right on the mark. I couldn't agree more. It is really a critical issue. And we, unfortunately, it's getting worse. I only hope that people can appreciate how significant some of the disparities really uh, have become. We see it in many areas of the healthcare, and, and, and flu is certainly no exception. The elderly, children, pregnant people are particularly vulnerable to severe outcomes from flu. And there's also a significant racial and ethnic disparity in flu outcomes, as, as well as vaccination rates. Health equity is a major focus, fortunately, in this administration. And we certainly appreciate that. We've been working with them. We've been hoping to elevate the recognition of that disparity and, and the equity challenges we're facing. 
We believe it's critical to ensure that health equity is a required part of seasonal and pandemic flu influenza planning. Addressing these disparities require just an enormous amount of kind of the same thing we were just talking about with regard to uh, myths and disinformation. We need leadership. We need collaboration. We need resources. And we just need a lot of hard work and the engagement of the stakeholder community. Do you think that the practices and the attitudes of management in nursing homes needs to change in this regard? Well, I think we need we need to to collectively look at how nursing homes can become the the contributor and the the leader that they need to be. I think a, a lot of I've talked to a lot of the nursing homes and the systems around the country. There is that recognition. They always are dealing with the resource challenges that they face, and I think the more we can work with them and make them part of the collaborative effort, uh, the better off the country is going to be. Thank you. You were there at the creation of many of these key institutions that are sort of the foundational institutions in dealing with seasonal and pandemic flu, BARDA, ASPR, the Strategic National Stockpile. These are now getting to be older institutions. Uh, They're ones that you could argue remain terribly important but they need a refresh. They need to, they need to update their their mission and their performance a bit. Can you say, in your view, and as laid out in the legislation, what does that mean in practice in terms of bringing them forward, emphasizing their centrality, but also giving them a bit of a of a reset? Well, that's a great question. I guess I wouldn't say that the bill seeks to update the mission of BARDA and ASPR and SNS so much as I would but say that we need to ensure that their authorizing statute now reflects the evolving nature of their work. And that's changed a lot. It's evolved a lot from their creation. And we've seen just tremendous scientific advancements in, in recent years. I'll give you a couple of examples. Asper's pandemic influenza program really does vital work making investments to prepare the country for the next influenza pandemic, from funding research and development for for pandemic vaccine candidates to to strengthening the U.S. manufacturing capacity. But this work is authorized in statute by just a a few words. Uh, We think there has to be a great deal of of value in expressing, really with greater specificity, the authorization of this critical program. But that's what we're talking about with regard to this, this clarity around the statute itself. The bill also has provisions clarifying BARDA that can can work on at-home tests for flu, as well as novel preventative approaches like monoclonal antibodies, both things that really became pivotal in our experience to the uh, uh, COVID-19 crisis. And then then I I guess I just say finally, Steve, that the bill requires the replenishment and the diversification of flu antivirals in the strategic national stockpile. Most Americans would probably be astonished to know that most of our stockpiled antivirals are more than 15 years old. So we can do a lot better than that. And those are the kinds of things we're talking about in, in sort of uh, renewing and, and, and re-clarifying uh, the role and the, uh, the whole purpose of these vital organizations. Do you, on this question around testing, diagnostics, and, and antivirals for flu, is one of the silver linings from the pandemic that at-home testing has been legitimized and proven to be possible in a new way that we should now be taking full advantage of that in trying to expand the testing and diagnosis of flu in America? 
I think you're right on the mark. Diagnostics and antivirals are not discussed as often as they should be. And we think they've, they've really got to be a part of the continuum of prevent, diagnose, and treat. They're a part of it. Among the bill's provisions is a section that requires ASPR to incorporate diagnostic supply chain resiliency into pandemic planning and develop a plan for wrapping up the public and private testing capacity quickly in an influenza pandemic. Again, all lessons learned from COVID. The bill would also implement a test-to-treat program for influenza, building on our experience with COVID. And finally, you may recall that we had an issue last winter with spot shortages of Tamiflu as a result of the, the heavy flu burden. No one, not the providers or the distributors or the manufacturers, had good visibility into the problem. So the bill requires that HHS monitor influenza antivirals throughout the country and establish a, a, a real process to distribute products to areas of need during these pandemics. I want to draw attention to two things. One is the dollar numbers that are contained in this bill are FY23 levels. That says to me that you're being very pragmatic and realistic in trying to set that foundational level in order to build, to market the bill and bring in more and more bipartisan support in the House and Senate. And I wanted you to comment a bit on that. You also set some national goals, 12 weeks as a target for vaccine development, for new pathogens that have pandemic potential, and 10 years for the universal flu vaccine. We published a piece just before COVID around what it was going to take to get a universal flu vaccine, which has been a been a an ambition over the years. And I was delighted to see that put there. Say a bit, please, about the realism in, in setting those numbers. What does that mean? How is, is am I interpreting that correctly? But also say a bit about what's the significance of establishing these these North Star goals? Well, you're absolutely right about the resources. This year's version of the Influenza Act reflects the unfortunate reality that the significant funding increases will be difficult to come by. The funding levels in the bill reflect level funding, actually. Our coalition really believes strongly in the investments in federal flu programs that are not only appropriate, but necessary given the financial impact of flu on our country. A recent estimate put the annual cost of seasonal flu to the United States at around $11 billion, $3.2 billion in direct medical costs, $8 billion in indirect costs as a result of absent employees. That $11 billion is a drop in the bucket compared to the, to the cost. And so we talk a lot in the pandemic preparedness world about the cycle of panic and neglect. And I, I fear we're already in the neglect phase and that couldn't be more, more dangerous or, or short-sighted. And I, you're absolutely right too about the, the, the overall planning. We've, we've really got, you know, I think some challenges there. The, the goal that we set out is drawn from the National Influenza Vaccine Modernization Strategy that I, I mentioned earlier. It originated in the Trump administration uh, executive order, and it's a it's a critical objective to how quickly we can get a vaccine out into the community in a pandemic, uh, because it's literally a, a matter of life and death. As we as we found out with COVID, the quicker we have a vaccine, the less dependent we have to be on non-pharmaceutical interventions like masking and distancing. So we think there's a lot of value in having that 12-week goal in statute and requiring a plan to get there in order to ensure accountability and prioritization. 
similar to the 12 week goal, we, we believe there's a tremendous value in, in, in having that goal in statute and requiring a plan on how we get there. This is how we help ensure continued prioritization of this effort and, and real accountability, which is so critical, real accountability on our progress. Thank you. Have you had many conversations with current and former governors about this bill? Because governors remain so important, as do mayors, in taking action and serving their populations and protecting their populations. But some oftentimes they get sort of lost in the debates around what we should be doing as a country on these issues of both seasonal and pandemic flu preparations. You're absolutely right. I, I don't. I really think that uh, the coordination that we've talked about a couple of times in this conversation, I think, is so critical. When we talk about coordination, it's got to be multi-level governmental coordination as well. And those governors are so critical, ensuring that we're successful. We saw that during COVID. We see it now with seasonal flu. I've been one of the founding members of the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. And uh, one of our co-chairs is uh, former Governor Tom Ridge from Pennsylvania. He recognizes that, and that's been one of his messages as well. We've really got to elevate the degree to which we coordinate at all levels. And unless we do that effectively, we really can't possibly address this, this whole challenge as successfully as we, as we must. Let's close by talking a moment about what gives you the greatest hope and optimism in this period. This is one of the issues we're trying to explore in the research that we're carrying out in those states I mentioned, North Carolina, Indiana, Nebraska, Washington, really looking at where's the creativity and the innovation, where's the energy at this moment. What's your thoughts on why we should remain fundamentally optimistic and hopeful in this period? Well, I think a couple of things. This may sound a little self-serving, but I, I have to say I'm really encouraged that this diversity, this 22-member this coalition could actually put aside whatever separate priorities or concerns that they have and, and be part of a larger effort. That's so critical. I, I often talk about, uh, in a lot of my speeches, Steve, I talk about the need for RICE, R-I-C-E. RICE stands for Resilience, Innovation, collaboration, and engagement. We need all four of those factors if we're going to be successful here. We're going to have a need for resiliency. There will be setbacks, as we saw with the crisis of COVID. We need innovation. And certainly, we're seeing a lot of innovative ideas now, and we talked about that earlier. We need the collaboration at all levels that we were talking about and that we have in the coalition, and we certainly need engagement. And that's where I think uh, CSIS has been so effective and bringing about a level of engagement that can really make a difference. Well, thank you so much, Senator, for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here today to speak with us about this really very, very important set of initiatives that are being carried out by the coalition to stop flu. And congratulations on all this terrific work. And I, as we get into the new year, I hope we can revisit some of these questions. I'd love to do it. It's uh, really a pleasure to talk with you and to continue to, to work with you and coming up with results as we recognize the many, many challenges we face. We have a reason to be optimistic, and I think there's a, a likelihood we're going to see some real, real progress over the coming new year. Thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.